Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. 1001 Ghost Stories is a collection of both my readings and others, mainly from old-time radio, and many are fully dramatized. We also cover a wide range of stories from the Victorian era to the present. If you enjoy our selections, we always appreciate reviews for 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Enjoy! How long is this going to go on? When is he going to die? Up and down the stairs with cups of tea. His wax-like face looking at me from the pillows, the thin voice... Almost a whisper. It's like some kind of terrible ritual. The endless cliches. <sighs> Dear God, I don't wish to sound unkind or cruel, but I, I wish it was all over. Another few days, the doctor said. It seems an eternity. Come along, Mary. Upstairs again. And I know exactly what he'll say when he sees the tea tray. The cup that cheers. Thank you, my dear. That's all right, Roland. You comfortable like that? Yes, thank you. Would you like me to adjust the pillows for you? No, no. No, really, I'm all right. You just sit there for a few minutes while I drink my tea, and then I'll go to sleep. <laughs> Why are you smiling like that? It's funny, that's all. Funny? What's funny? How we pretend. You know I'm dying. I know I'm dying, yet I'm not supposed to know. Why? Dying is a perfectly natural function. Everyone does it once. Do you, do you know something, Mary? I, I'm rather looking forward to it. Dying, I mean. Roland, how can you? You might have some consideration for my feelings. Huh? It's so silly, you sitting there trying to make small talk and me racking my brains for something cheerful to say. Look, I don't want to talk about it. Pity. Because I rather wanted to ask your advice. Advice? I don't understand. Well, 
You're much brighter than me, and being a churchgoer, I thought you might give me, well, one or two tips on how to behave when I get there. Get there? Where? To wherever it is I'm going. That's another point. Where am I going? Honestly, Mary, I, I can't see myself in a flannel nightgown playing a harp. I, I mean to say, I, I'm not that sort of chap. You're being blasphemous, Roland. I remember you may soon have to meet your maker. But will I? Let's face it, my dear, there's an awful lot of people in my predicament and he can't meet us all, can he? I keep thinking and thinking and all I can come up with is a long list of questions and not a single answer. What sort of person will I be? What sort of person will you be? You'll be yourself, of course. The person you've always been. I'm not sure, Mary. The me you know is the result of glance, environment, memories, heredity, and lots of other things besides. But once out of this body, I might be another kettle of fish entirely. Have you... Have you thought about that? Oh, nonsense. You're talking utter rubbish. Mary, listen. You remember that tiger we saw at Chessington Zoo a few years ago? Looked peaceful, didn't he? Well fed. Just a big, cuddly pussycat. But think what he would have been like if we'd let him out of his cage, eh? <laughs> Very different story, I bet. The panacea for all life's ills, the comforter, the suburban drug. God, I'm so tired of making tea, of climbing those stairs. It's not that I don't love him, it's just, oh, I wish it was all over. <gasps> Roland, what are you doing down here? Roland? He can't get out of bed. He hasn't the strength. He hasn't a black dressing gown, either. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Ro Roland. <laughs> Fine now, fine. <laughs> There's no need for you to sit up all night, you know. No, no, I'm all right. It won't be much longer now. 
When it's all over, you can have a nice long sleep. When it's all Oh, over. please don't talk like that. Please. Oh, forgive me. I never intended... I don't want you to die, Roland. I don't want you to die. <laughs> You're not to die. Do you hear me? You are not to die. My dear, dear Mary. I fear on this one occasion I must disobey. This isn't just a matter of change of career. Although I suppose it does come under that heading. What do you mean? You know, I was only thinking of your own good, Roland. So to throw up a steady, well-paid job for pie in the sky would have been madness. I mean, surely you realise that now. But it might have worked. It might have. Carstairs had faith in me until... The man you... was an adventurer. You would have lost everything. I expect you're right. You always were. But I would have liked to try. Try. Uh, uh, that's enough tea for now. I'm tired again. Let me sleep. Please. Have you held that against me all these years? Have you, Roland? Oh, it's like washing away the years. Everything that's gone before, wiped clean, leaving me refreshed, renewed. What was that? Who's there? Is there anyone there? I swore I heard something. Someone just outside the door. Oh, I know. The woman Dr. Ferguson was arranging to come round. She must have come in through the back door. Couldn't have heard her knock. Is that you, nurse? Roland! I would have liked to try. No, no, don't move. What happened? Well, I found you all of a heap by the door here. How are you feeling? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm Mrs Parkins. Dr Ferguson sent me round to help. I couldn't lift you, so I brought a pillow out here on the landing. Do you think you can sit up? Uh, uh, oh, yes. Yes, I think so. If you can just lean yourself against the wall. That's it. Better? I don't think you've broken any bones or anything. Well, how did you get in? Well, when I heard you scream, I rushed round the back. I found the kitchen door open, thank goodness. Otherwise, I'd have had to break in. Well, I... Uh, I fainted, that's all. It's very silly of me. I'm sorry, Mrs... Mrs... Uh, uh, Parkins, Mrs Parkins. 
I thought it was your husband I'd come to look after, not you, eh? <laughs> yes, Mrs. Parkins. Oh, that's better. You're smiling again. You've been overdoing it, I expect. Getting no sleep and precious little to eat, I'll be bound. I see you've got a spare bedroom. Yes. Well, then, why don't you pop in there and have a good long sleep? Leave the old gentleman to me. I'll pop in during the day and see that he's all right. Him? Him? Oh, God. No, 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 no. You, you mustn't carry on so. Oh, you've done all you can for him, I'm sure. It's all anyone can do in the circumstances. Do all you can, I say, and you can let them go with an easy conscience. The poor gentleman will bless you, I know that, and time will heal. Now, let me help you to the bed, and when I've seen that he's nice and snug, I'll tidy up a bit and get lunch ready. What do you say? Yes. yes. Thank you, Mrs Parkins. You're, you're most kind. Right. Now... Take my arm and I'll help you to the bedroom. Then I'll go and take a look at your husband. What's taking her so long? What in God's name are you doing, Mrs Parkins? Is... is Roland... Oh, no. Please. Please may he be alive. And awake. Please. Is he all right, Mrs Parkins? He's awake and chirpy as you please. I told him who I am and what happened, and he says you're to have a nice rest and not to worry. I'm not imagining it. I know I'm not. I've seen him twice now. But can a man's ghost walk while he's still alive? Maybe it's an illusion born from guilt. Guilt? What have I got to feel guilty about? Whatever I did, I did for the best. Now, wait a minute. I know. Somewhere. I, I read somewhere. Um, Elizabeth I. That's it. The Death of Elizabeth. That second-hand book Roland bought years ago. I must get downstairs. Right then. Now that everything's all right up here, I'm going downstairs to the kitchen and get things moving. If you want anything, just call. Okay? Ah, here we are. Lady Guildford, then in waiting on the Queen, and leaving her in an almost breathless sleep, went out to take a little air, and met Her Majesty, as she thought, three or four chambers off. Lady Guildford returned, terrified, to the chamber, but there lay Queen Elizabeth in the same lethargic, motionless slumber in which she had left her. My experience is not unique, then. But... But the Roland who... Uh, the thing dressed in black... Once out of this body, I may be a different kettle of fish entirely. 
Perhaps all these years I've been living with a caged tiger who stalked, waiting with terrible patience for its hour of release. What are you doing down here, Mrs. Cornell? Um, I had the shock of my life when I went into your room upstairs just now and found the bed empty. Now you go and get some proper sleep while I take care of the old gentleman. Seven o'clock. Mrs. Parkins will be going in a minute. Twelve hours. Twelve long hours. Oh, dear God, I... No, Mary, you've got to be strong. You can't give in now. Besides, you've never been one for giving in. You've been a good wife. You've satisfied Roland's every need. No one can criticise you for being anything but a good wife. I'll be off then, Mrs. Cornell. All right. All right, Mrs. Parkins, thank you. <coughs> Roland? Roland, dear, you awake? Yes. Can I put the light on? It's dark in here. Days are drawing in. Another cliche. I'll pull the curtains, eh? Then no one can see you. Well, how do you feel? Fine, fine. Roland, dear, have you been happy? I mean, have I made you happy, Roland? The number of times a man is really happy can be counted on the fingers of one hand. Oh, but I'm... I've done what I thought was best for both of us. While there is breath in my body, I will never reproach you. And when you no longer breathe? Who, who can tell into what kind of hell my sightless soul will roam? Roland, explain what you mean. Fallen asleep. Oh dear God, I don't think I can stand it. But I must. But he frightens me so. Before he looked so old, and now there's, there's a youthfulness about his white face. His voice, it's older. He frightens me. Yet, how can horror grow from such an ordinary man? Why? Why are you staring at me like that? 
But don't stare at me like that, please. Can I get you anything? Can I? He's asleep again. Oh, Dad. The door downstairs. Someone's in the house. He's staring at me again. Roland, are you awake? I, look, I, I have to go downstairs. I think I left the back door open. Roland? He's staring at me in his sleep. <coughs> What's happening now? Oh, my God. Roland. into the comforting darkness that lies beyond. A million suns light my path, but something pulls me back. Back! Mary, a cup of tea, please. My mouth is parched. No, no. 
tea, the cup that cheers, cheers, Mary. Plenty of milk, lots and lots of sugar. He's back again. The ghost is back again. Not much longer. A cup of weak tea. I'm going mad. Mary, can't you hear me? A cup of tea for my parched tongue. (gasps) You see him. You see him too, don't you, Roland? You see your other self, your black self, don't you? Look at him, Roland. No, no, stay away from me. He's come for you, Roland. Your other self. I... I... Oh, my God! Roland! Old man's dead. She's sitting in that chair with his body at her feet. Oh, you poor, poor dear. I shouldn't have left you. Oh, I shouldn't have left you. It was my fault. That selfish bitch. What? What did you say? The selfish bitch. Wouldn't have children done me out of my big chance. Nag, nag, nag. Who are you? What are you saying? No, don't touch me. <laughs> she won't nag anymore. No, she won't. I'm the boss now, screaming she is inside the head. She's screaming. She won't nag any more. She'll never nag any more. <laughs> Liberated Tiger by R. Chetwind Hayes, Rosemary Leach was Mary, and Leslie Sands, Roland, with Hilda Schroeder as Mrs. Parkins. 
It was a BBC World Service drama production directed by Derek Hodenut. Supernatural. George Baker and Jeremy Clyde star in The Dead Man of Varley Grange. Dramatised for radio by Patricia Mays. I had known Captain Jack Darrant for several years, and he was, I suppose, what people call a likeable rogue. He seemed incapable of settling anywhere or into anything. To all intents and purposes, his prospects were dim, but Jack would only smile and laugh off his future as something he could worry about tomorrow or the day after. But he never did. My wife, Bella, liked Jack too, but my sister Amelia, who lived with us, was in love with a handsome officer and barely concealed it, not even to Jack, who, when Amelia's affection showed, would simply say, I've no time to settle down, at least not yet. He would be gone for days, weeks or several months at a time. So it was a pleasant surprise when one day, as I entered my club, I saw Captain John Darrant sitting in a chair near the door of the smoking room. Hello, Jack. Lester. Haven't seen you at the club for some time. Where are you off to? Home for Christmas? Dear fellow, do I look like the sort of man to be victimised at a family Christmas meeting? Do you know the kind of business they have at home? Three maiden aunts and a bachelor uncle, my eldest brother and his insipid wife, and all my sisters, six noisy children at dinner, church twice a day and dull conversation between the services. No thank you. I have a great affection for my old parents, but you don't catch me going in for that sort of national festival. You irreverent ruffian. Now, if you were a married man... Ah, if I were a married man... How is dear Amelia? My sister is quite well, thank you. She's been going to a great many balls and enjoying herself. I don't see how a poor fellow in a marching regiment, a younger son, too, with nothing in the future to look to, is ever to marry nowadays. When girls are used to so much luxury and extravagance, they can't (laughs) live without it. Matrimony is at a deadlock, Fred, chiefly owing to the price of butcher's meat and bonnets. (laughs) Uh, Mark my word... By the turn of the century, it will become extinct and the country will be depopulated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I must be off now, old man, or I shall miss my train. But you'll never tell me where you're going, Jack. No, I'm going to stay with old Henderson in Westonshire. He's taken a furnished house with some first-rate pheasant shooting for a year. Oh. And there are several of us going, all bachelors and all kindred spirits. We shall shoot all day and smoke half the night. Think what you've lost, old fellow. In Westonshire? Whereabouts? I know every nook and cranny in that county. Oh, it's a tumble-down sort of old house, I believe. Gables and twisted chimneys outside and uncomfortable spindle-legged furniture inside. You know, the sort of thing. But the shooting is capital, Henderson says, and we must put up with our quarters. He's taken his French cook down and plenty of liquor, so I've no doubt we shan't starve. What's the name of it? Ah, let me see. I have the letter of invitation here. Ah, here it is. Varley Grange. Varley Grange? Yes. But I know it. It's not been inhabited for years. I believe not. The shooting has been let separately, but Henderson took a fancy to the house too and thought it would do for him, furniture and all, just as it is. My my dear Fred, what are you looking so solemnly at me for? Jack, let me entreat of you not to go to this place. Not go? Why, Lester, you must be mad. Why on earth shouldn't I go there? There are stories 
Uncomfortable things are said of that. I dare say it's cold and draughty and infested with rats and mice, and I have no doubt the creature comforts will not be equal to Queen's Gate. Uh, but I stand pledged to go now, and I must be off this very minute. So have no time, old fellow, to inquire into the meaning of your sensational warning. Uh, goodbye, and remember me to the dear ladies. Write to me if you have time. There you are, Frederick. Just in time for tea. Hello, Bella, my dear. Come and sit down, there's a dear. Amelia's just about to join us. Good. She will be pleased to hear that I saw Jack Darren today. Did you? Oh, how marvellous. And how is he? We haven't seen him for ages. Did you invite him to dinner? Now, that would be nice, and Amelia would be so grateful. And what would I be so grateful for? <laughs> oh, Amelia, dear. Frederick has seen Captain Darrant today. Oh, have you, Frederick? Have you really? Yes, he was at the club. And how is he? He's very well. Very well indeed. And uh, is he coming to see us sometime? You mean, is he coming to see you? <laughs> well, I cannot deny it would be very pleasant to see Captain Darrant after all this time. It's been ages. Months. Well, you know, Jack, here, there, everywhere. Frederick, I've just had a splendid idea. If he's not going anywhere for Christmas, why can't he spend it here with us? Now, Amelia... What do you say to that? Oh, Frederick, that would be nice. I don't expect he's looking forward to staying with his family. You're right. He's not going home for Christmas. Well, then, you must send him a note and invite him to spend the Christmas festivities with us. I don't think that would be possible, Bella. Why? Is it because of me? My dear, of course it isn't. You know Jack has the highest regard for you. But he has his pride. Oh, men and their pride. We've talked this out before. <sighs> Bella... Can't you make her understand? Amelia, I'm afraid Frederick is right, and so is Jack. What money, what future has he to support a wife? I suppose if he thought anything of me at all, he would have tried to arrange his life by now. Jack is a restless spirit. I suppose some men are. How long it will last, I don't know. But I'm sure the time will come when, like all young men, he will settle down. You have said that before, Bella, and I believed you. There's no other explanation, Amelia. There's no question that Captain Darrant is very, very fond of you. Indeed. He asked after you. There you are. But a man who's only known the army for a career needs time to adjust to new circumstances. Anyway, we still don't know, Frederick, why he can't come here and spend Christmas with us. Because he has already made other arrangements. Oh, no. that is a pity. Oh, excuse me, please. Amelia. Really, Frederick, that young man makes me so angry. Does he know what he's doing to your sister? Probably not. Can't you say anything to him? Bella, I cannot interfere in another man's affairs, even though Jack is a close friend of mine. In any case, I think he's right. The thought of my sister marrying a man with little prospects would concern me greatly, as indeed it would him. For whatever else he may be, he's a man of honour, and he would not condone a situation where he thought he was being kept. Men's pride again. Yes, if you like. But there is something else which to me is far more worrying than that. I'm pleased Amelia has left us for a moment. What is it? Is it about Jack? Yes, I'm afraid it is. It's where he's going to spend Christmas. What do you mean? Why should it concern us? Because he's going to stay in Westonshire. At Varley Grange. Varley Grange? I don't want you to say anything to Amelia, do you hear? Of course, I wouldn't breathe a word. But Varley Grange hasn't been inhabited for ten years. And the last time... Oh, Frederick, you must remember those poor people who took it. What a terrible story. Apparently a man by the name of Henderson, a bachelor like Jack, has rented it for Christmas 
and has asked down a party of men for a week's shooting. Jack Darrant is one of them. Frederick, you must prevent him from going down. My dear, he is already gone. Then write to him. Telegraph him and beg him to come back. Ask him to stay here. I'm afraid it's of no use. He wouldn't come back. He wouldn't believe me. He would think I was mad. Then you did not tell him the story of Varley Grange. I had not. There had not been time. Besides, if I had, Jack would have laughed. The story is vague enough. In the old days, Varley Grange belonged to an ancient family of Varley, now completely extinct. There was, some hundred years ago, a daughter, famed for her beauty and her fascination. She wanted to marry a poor, penniless squire who loved her devotedly. Her brother Dennis Varley, the new owner of Varley Grange, refused to give his consent and shut his sister up in a nunnery that used to stand outside the park gates. A few ruins remain. The poor nun broke her vows and ran away into the night with her lover. But her brother pursued her and brought her back with him. The lover escaped. But the lord of Varley, swearing that no scion of his race should live to disgrace and dishonour his ancient name, murdered his sister under his own roof. Ever since that day, Dennis Varley's spirit cannot rest in its grave. He wanders about the old house at night, and those who have seen him are numberless. Now and then, the pale, shadowy form of a nun flits across the old hall or along the gloomy passages, and when both strange shapes, the murderer and his victim, are seen together, then misfortune and illness and even death are sure to pursue the luckless man who has seen them with remorseless cruelty within the year. Hello, Fred. Oh, what's the matter, man? You look ill. Well, have you a moment to spare, Fred? Come into the club. I have something to tell you. Well, the smoking room should be empty at this time of day. You were quite right, Fred. You know that? About Varley Grange? What do you mean? Have you seen anything? Well, let's sit here. I tell you, Fred... I've seen everything. Oh, my God. They, they say one dies within a year. My dear fellow, don't believe those stories. But you believe them, Fred. Don't you? Let me tell you what happened. You remember the day I went? I had a race to catch the train. However, I just did it. I found the other fellows all waiting for me. There was uh, Charlie Wells, the two Hartfords, old Colonel Riddle, who is such a crack shot, a fellow in the guards, a, a man called Thompson, a, a barrister, Henderson and myself, eight of us in all. We had a remarkably lively journey down, as you may imagine, and reached Varley Grange in the highest possible spirits. We all slept like tops that night. Well, the next day, we were out from eleven till dusk among the covers, and a better day's shooting I never enjoyed in the whole course of my life. The birds literally swarmed. After dinner, we adjourned to the hall to smoke. This hall is quite the feature of the house 
It is large and bright, panelled halfway up with sombre old oak and vaulted with heavy carved rafters. At the farther end runs a gallery, into which opened the door of my bedroom. Well, all we fellows sat up there, smoking and drinking brandy and soda and jawing, you know, the way men always do when they're together, about sport of all kinds, hunting and shooting and salmon fishing, and I assure you, not one of us had a thought in our heads beyond relating some wonderful incident of a long shot or a big fence by which we could each cap the last speaker's experiences. Well, that was nothing to what I experienced in India. Oh. Yes, Mr. Pesh. Mm. India is not known for its fishing, as you can imagine. Mm. Its shooting is some of the greatest... Well, sorry ever. to interrupt you, Colonel. Yeah. What's the matter with Wells? Aren't you listening, Wells? What are you looking at? Up there. Standing on the gallery behind us. Yeah, what's the fella talking about? My God! Can you see him? Yes. Good Lord. Who is it? Not who is it. What is it? Don't move. Don't anyone move. He's staring at us. Just staring at us. Have you noticed something? What? How cold it's suddenly become. Yes. Yes, you're right. Yet look how brightly the fire burns. We all saw him, every one of us. He stood there a full ten seconds, looking down at us with horrible, glittering eyes. He had a long, tawny beard, and his hands, which were crossed together before him, were nothing but skin and bone, but it was his face that was so unspeakably dreadful. It was the face of a dead man. How was he dressed? I couldn't see. He wore some kind of black cloak over his shoulders, I think, but the lower part of his figure was hidden behind the railings. As I said, he stood there about ten seconds, and then the figure moved, backing slowly into the door of the room behind him, which stood open. It was the door of my bedroom. Well, there was a general rush for the staircase, and as you may imagine, there was not a corner of the house that was left unsearched, and my bedroom especially was ransacked in every part. But all in vain, there was not the slightest trace to be found of any living being. You may suppose that not one of us slept that night. We lighted every candle and lamp we could lay hands upon and sat up until daylight, but nothing more was seen. The next morning I tried to discuss it with Henderson over breakfast. I'd rather we didn't talk about it, Jack, if you don't mind. Oh, but you saw it, Henderson. Yes, I know. All of us saw it. I said I know. It was a, a practical joke of some kind. Oh, it must have been. For goodness sake, man. A joke? Who would play such a joke? And how did he manage to get out of my room when we went up there? Oh, a secret panel, maybe. I don't know. Well, well. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Colonel. Where are the others? Not still asleep, are they? Hmm. Don't tell me you slept soundly, Colonel. They'll be down in a minute, I expect. My dear fellow, I always sleep soundly. Oh, perhaps they're talking to our friend, eh? You could be right, Colonel. <laughs> I think that's in poor taste. Well, the Colonel probably takes the view as I do. Yeah, what's that? What we saw last night was some kind of practical joke. My view exactly, old man. One of the servants dressed up, uh, something like that. Servants? Well, if he was one of mine, I'd shoot him. I hardly think one of my servants would do such a damn silly thing. What sort of people do you think I'm calling? All right, all right. I apologise, old man. Just searching for some kind of explanation. So, what's your view, then? Hmm? It wasn't any of us. I mean, we were all there, remember? No, old chap. 
You've got an unexpected guest. Well, the Colonel's right. I think we should cease to discuss it. How can we forget something like that? Well, I agree, you can't only forget it, but try and put this, or this apparition out of your mind as far as you can. We, of course, readily agreed to do as he wished, although I do not think that one of us imagined for a moment that any amount of dressing up would be able to simulate the awful countenance that we had all of us seen only too plainly. And such a person could not be amongst us, actually in the house, without our knowledge. That evening, at Henderson's suggestion, we all appeared in the hall after dinner with loaded guns. But although we sat up till the small hours and looked frequently up at the gallery at the end of the hall, nothing at all disturbed us that night. Two nights thus went by, and nothing further was seen of the gentleman with the tawny beard. And what with the good company, the good cheer, and the pheasants, we had pretty well forgotten about him. On the third night, we were sitting as usual with our pipes and our cigars, and a pleasant glow from the bright wood fire in the great chimney lighted up the old hall and shed a genial warmth about us. Give the fire a poke, will you, Wells, old chap? Hmm? What? It's getting cold. Put another log on or something. Oh, my God. What's the matter, Henderson? Please, God, please say I'm mistaken. He's there again. It's getting colder by the second. He's just standing there, staring. The same man. If I reach for the gun... Steady, Colonel. Those eyes, they pierce you. I've got the gun. Well, then fire it, for God's sake. Hurry, Colonel. He's still there. He's moving back, like he did before, into my bedroom. I I couldn't have missed. I'm a crack shot, damn it. I couldn't. It is a singular and remarkable fact that four out of the eight of us received by the next morning's post, so they stated, letters of importance which called them up to town by the very first train. One man's mother was ill, another had to consult his lawyer, whilst pressing engagements to which they could assign no definite name called away the other two. There were left in the house that day but four of us. Wells, Colonel Riddle, our host and myself... A sort of dogged determination not to be scared off kept us there. The morning light brought a return of common sense and natural courage to us. We managed to laugh about the previous night's terrors at breakfast in the pleasant morning room with the sunshine streaming cheerily in through the diamond pane windows. It must be a delusion of our brains. Our host champagne, more like it. I'll tell you what we'll do. Now that those other fellows have all gone, And I suppose we don't any of us believe much in those elaborate family reasons which have so unaccountably summoned them away. (laughs) We four will sit up regularly night after night and watch for this thing, whatever it may be. I do not believe in ghosts. However, this morning I've taken the trouble to go out before breakfast to see the rector of the parish, an old gentleman who's well up in all the traditions of the neighbourhood. And I've learned from him the whole of the supposed story of our friend of the tawny beard, which, if you will, I will relate to you. Henderson then proceeded to tell us the tradition concerning Dennis Varley, who murdered his sister, the nun, a story which I will not repeat to you, Lester, as you know it already. Furthermore, the clergyman had told him that the figure of the murdered nun was also sometimes seen in the same gallery, but that this was a very rare occurrence. When both the murderer and his victim are seen together, terrible misfortunes are sure to assail the unfortunate living man who sees them. 
And if the nun's face is revealed, death within the year is the doom of the ill-fated person who has seen it. Of course, I consider all these stories to be absolutely childish. At the same time, I cannot help thinking that some human agency, probably a gang of thieves or housebreakers, is at work, and that we shall probably be able to unearth an organised system of villainy by which the rogues presuming on the credulity of the persons who have inhabited the place, have been able to plant themselves securely among some secret passages and hidden rooms in the house and have carried on their villainy undiscovered and unsuspected. Now, will all of you help me to unravel this mystery? I agree. Oh, well, I must say, I resent being terrorised like yes, this. you can count me in, Henderson. I feel like Darren here. No one's going to try and scare me without a damn good fight. Good. Of course, uh... If we see the nun... Uh, we'll all know who she's come for, eh, chaps? Ah, uh, Jack Darrant, of course. <laughs> He's the handsomest man here. That's a challenge for you, Darrant, old man. A nun, eh? A nun wouldn't be a challenge for you, Darren, would it? A soldier, eh? Uh, all right, you chaps, that's enough. <laughs> Good God, look at him. I do believe he's embarrassed. <laughs> That was 11 o'clock in the morning. We were brave then. So what did you do? At 11 o'clock that night, each man took up his appointed post in solemn and somewhat depressed silence. The plan of our campaign had been carefully organised by our host. Each man was posted separately, with about 30 feet between them, so that no optical delusion, such as an effect of firelight upon the oak panelling, nor any reflection from the circular mirror over the chimney-piece, should be able to deceive more than one of us. Our host fixed himself in the very centre of the hall, facing the gallery at the end. Wells took up his position halfway up the short flight of steps. Colonel Riddle was at the top of the stairs upon the gallery itself. I was opposite him, at the farther end. In this manner, whenever the figure, ghost or burglar, should appear... It must necessarily be between two of us, and be seen from both the right and the left side. Each man was provided with a loaded revolver, a brandy and soda, and a sufficient stock of pipes and cigars to last him through the night. We took up our positions at eleven o'clock exactly, and waited. I never remember such a night in all my life. We all sat on at our separate posts, hour after hour, listening to the wind and talking at intervals, but as the time wore on, insensibly we became less and less talkative, and a sort of depression crept over us. At last we relapsed into a profound silence. Then, suddenly, there came upon us all that chill blast of air, like a breath from a charnel house that we'd experienced before, and almost simultaneously a hoarse cry broke from Henderson in the body of the hall below, and from Wells halfway up the stairs, Colonel Riddle and I sprang to our feet, and we too saw it. The dead man was slowly coming up the stairs. He passed silently with a sort of still gliding motion within a few inches of poor Wells, who shrank back, white with terror, against the wall. Henderson rushed wildly up the staircase in pursuit, while Colonel Riddle and I, up on the gallery, fell back instinctively at his approach. He, he passed between us. We saw the glitter of his sightless eyes the shriveled skin upon his withered face, the mouth that fell away like the mouth of a corpse beneath his tawny beard. We felt the cold, death-like blast that came with him and the sickening horror of his terrible presence. Can I never forget it? My dear fellow. 
Forgive me, Lester. The whole business has shaken my nerves so thoroughly that I've not yet been able to get over it. But I've not yet told you the worst. Is there worse? There is, my friend. As we stood there in the hall, in a state of paralysed fear, Wells suddenly gripped my arm. Jack! Jack! What is it? At the end of the gallery. Henderson! Colonel! Can you see it? What now? What's the matter, Wells? Coming towards us. Oh, my God. It, it's her, the nun. Oh, my God. Help us. Help us. For God's sake, Wells. This must be a hoax. A ghastly, sickening hoax, and it's got to stop. Jack, what are you doing? Come back, man. Stay away. Let's get out of here before we're all dead. I tell you, this whole thing is one great hoax, and I'm going to find out who's behind it. Get him back, Henderson. There's nothing I can do. He's going to touch her. Look. It's raising her head. Don't look. Turn away, all of you. What did she look like, Jack? That I can never tell to any living creature. Was it so horrible? Yes. Yes. What happened next? I believe I fainted. At all events, I remembered nothing further. They made me go to the vicarage the next day. I was so knocked over by it all. I was quite ill. I could not have stayed in the house. I stopped there all yesterday and I got up to town this morning. I wish to heaven I'd taken your advice, old man, and had never gone to that horrible house. I wish you had, Jack. Do you know that I shall die within the year? My dear fellow, don't take the thing so seriously as all that. Whatever may be the meaning of these horrible apparitions... There can be nothing but an old wife's fable in that saying. Why on earth should you die? You, of all people, a great strong fellow with a constitution of iron. You don't look much like dying. For all that, I shall die. I cannot tell you why I am so certain, but I know that it will be so. The others are safe, for they did not see her face. It is I who, for certain, is doomed. A year has passed away. And what of Jack Darrant? Poor, handsome Jack, with his tall figure and his bright, happy face, and the merry blue eyes that had beguiled my sister's heart. Alas, far away in southern Africa, poor Jack Darrant lies in an unknown grave, slain by a Zulu assegai on the plain of Izandula, the only one from that fateful night to be dead. And my sister goes about clad in sable garments, heavy-eyed and stricken with sore grief, a widow in heart, if not in name. Tales of the Supernatural. Tony Britton and Jack May star in The Grey Ones by J.B. Priestley. Dramatised for radio by Patricia Mays.
And your occupation, Mr. Patson? I'm uh, an exporter. It's a family business. My grandfather started it. Originally for the Far East. Firms abroad, especially in rather remote places, send us orders for all manner of goods, which we buy here on commission for them. It's not the business it was 50 years ago, of course. Still, I enjoy it. That is the impression you've given me. And you're reasonably prosperous, I gather. We all have our financial worries these days, of course. <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> so I think we can eliminate all that side, eh, Mr Patson? Oh, yes, certainly. Hmm. Well, now, tell me what's troubling you. Well, Mr Patson? Before I can tell the whole story, can I ask you a question? If you think it might help? Yes, I think it could. Because I'd like to know roughly where you stand before I begin to explain. Dr Smith, do you believe there is a kind of evil principle in the universe? A sort of super devil that's working hard to ruin humanity and has its agents who must really be minor devils or demons living among us as people? Do you believe that? Certainly not. That's merely superstitious fancy for which there is no scientific evidence whatsoever. It's easy to understand, although we needn't go into that now, why anybody even today suffering from emotional stress might be possessed by such an absurd belief. It's, it's mere fantasy, entirely subjective in origin. And the notion that this evil principle could have its agents among us might be very dangerous indeed. It could produce serious antisocial effects. You realise that, Mr Patson? Oh, yes, I do. I mean, at certain times, when, when, well, when I've been able to look at it as you're looking at it, Doctor... But most times I can't. <laughs> and that, I suppose, is why I'm here. Quite so. And I think you've been well advised to come here and seek psychiatric treatment. These things are apt to be sharply progressive, although their actual progress might be described as regressive. But I won't worry you with technicalities, Mr Patson. I'll merely say that you, or, or was it Mrs Patson, or, shall I say, both of you, are to be congratulated on taking this very sensible step in good time. And now you know, as you said, where I stand. Perhaps you'd better tell me all about it. Please don't omit anything for fear of appearing ridiculous. I can only help you if you are perfectly frank with me, Mr Patson. I may ask you a few questions, but their purpose will be to make your account clearer to me. Oh, by the way, here we don't adopt the psychoanalytic methods. We don't sit behind our patients while they relax on a couch. But if you would find it easier not to address me as you have been doing face to face... Oh, no, no, that's all right. I think I can talk to you just like this. Anyhow, I'll try. Ah, good. And remember, try to tell me everything relevant. Uh. Smoke, if it will help you to concentrate. Oh, thanks. I might, later on. <clears throat> well, it, it began about a year ago. I have a cousin who's a publisher... And one night he took me to dine at his club, the Burlington. Well, uh, after dinner we played bridge for an hour or two and then we went down to the lounge for a final drink before leaving. And it was then that I overheard Furbright, you know, the, the famous painter... Oh, yeah. ..who was obviously full of drink, although you couldn't exactly call him drunk, and was holding forth to a little group at the other side of the fireplace... Apparently, he'd just come back from Syria or somewhere around there and he'd picked this idea up from somebody there, though he said it only confirmed what he'd been thinking himself 
for some time. You mean the idea of an evil principle working to ruin humanity? Yes. Furbright said that the old notions of a scarlet and black sulfuric set and busy tempting people was, of course, all wrong. Though it might have been right at one time, perhaps in the Middle Ages. Then the devils were all fire and energy. Furbright quoted the poet Blake, I've read him since, to show that these weren't real devils. And their hell wasn't the real hell. Blake, in fact, according to Furbright, was the first man to suggest that we didn't understand the evil principle. But in his time, he hardly made a start. It's during the last few years, Furbright said, that the horrible thing has really got to work on us. Got to work on us? Doing what? Destroying the soul of humanity. To eliminate certain states of mind that belong essentially to the good to wipe from the face of the earth all wonder, joy, deep feeling, the desire to create, to praise life. Mind you, that, that's what Furbright said. But you believed him. I couldn't help feeling even then that there was something in it. I'd, I'd never thought on those lines before. I'm, I'm just a plain businessman and not given to fancy speculation. But I had been feeling for some time that things were going wrong and that... Somehow, they seem to be out of our control. In theory, I suppose we're responsible for the sort of lives we lead. But in actual practice, we find ourselves living more and more the kind of life we don't like. It's as if we were all compelled to send our washing to one huge, sinister laundry, which returned everything with more and more colour bleached out of it until it was all a dismal grey. I take it that you are now telling me what you thought and felt yourself, and not what you overheard this man Furbright About say. the laundry, about the laundry, yes, and, and, and about things never going the right way, yes. That's what I'd been feeling. As if the shape and colour and smell of things were going. Do you understand what I mean, Doctor? Oh, yes, it's part of a familiar pattern. Your age may have something to do with it. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. This is something quite different. I've made allowances for that. Hmm. So far as you can, no doubt. And, of course, that wasn't all, by any means. Now we come to these agents. Ah, yes, the agents. It was Furbright who gave you that idea, was it? Yes, it, it would never have occurred to me, I'll admit. But if this evil principle was trying to make something like insects out of us, it could do it two ways. One, by a sort of remote control... Perhaps by a sort of continuous radio programme, never leaving our minds alone, telling us not to attempt anything new, to play safe, not to have any illusions, to keep to routine. But the other way, direct control, you might call it, was by the use of these agents, a sort of evil fifth column, with more and more of them everywhere, Hard at work. Devils? Demons? What? Well, that's what they amount to. Except that it gives them a wrong idea of them, horns and tails and that sort of thing. These are quite different, Furbright says. All you can definitely say is that they're not human. They don't belong to us. They don't like us. They're working against us. They have their orders, they know what they're doing. They work together in teams. 
They arrange to get jobs for one another, more and more influence and power. So, what chance have we against them? If such beings existed, we should soon be at their mercy, I agree. Aye. But then they don't exist. Except, of course, as figures of fantasy. Although in that capacity they can do a great deal of harm. I take it, Mr. Patson, that you have thought about, or shall we say, brooded over these demonic creatures rather a lot lately. Oh, yes. I must say I have. Quite so. Uh, by the way, what do you call them? It might save time and possible confusion if we can give them a name. They're the grey ones. Ah, the grey ones. You seem very sure about this, Mr. Patson. Well, why shouldn't I be? You ask me what I call them, so I tell you. Of course, I don't know what they call themselves, and I didn't invent that name for them. Oh, this is Furbright again, is it? Yes, yes, that's what I heard him calling them. And it seemed to me a very good name for them. They're trying to give everything a grey look, aren't they? Just quiet grey fellows, busy greying everything. That's them. Mm. Is it indeed? Aye. Yet you've never met one. Isn't that highly suggestive? Doesn't that make you ask yourself what truth there can be in this absurd notion? All these grey ones seeking power over us, influencing our lives, and yet you've never actually come into contact with one? Now, now, Mr. Patterson... Who says I've never met one? Where did you get that idea from, Doctor? Oh, do you mean to tell me? Certainly I mean to tell you. I know at least a dozen of them. My own brother-in-law is one. So that's how it is, Mr. Patson. Very well. Let us begin with your brother-in-law. When and how did you make the discovery that he is a grey one? Well, I'd wondered about Harold for years. I've always disliked him, but I never quite knew why. He puzzled me, too. He's one of those chaps who don't seem to have any centre you can understand. They don't... They don't act from any ordinary human feeling. They haven't motives you can appreciate. It's as if there was nothing inside them. They seem to tick over like automatic machines. I'd try to get closer to him, just for my wife's sake, although they'd never been close. I'd talk to him at home after dinner, and sometimes I'd take him out. You couldn't call him unfriendly. That at least would have been something. He'd listen up to a point while I talked. If I asked him a question, he'd make some sort of reply. He'd talk himself in a kind of fashion. Rather like a leading article in one of the more cautious newspapers. Chilly stuff, grey stuff. Nothing exactly wrong with it, but nothing right about it either. And after a time, about half an hour or so, I'd find it hard to talk to him, even about my own affairs. I'd begin wondering what to say next. There'd be a sort of vacuum between us. He had a trick, which I've often met elsewhere, of deliberately not encouraging you to go on, of just staring, waiting for you to say something silly. Now, I put this down to his being a public official. When I first knew him, he was one of the assistants to the clerk of our local borough council. Now he's the clerk. Quite a good job for ours as a big borough. Well, a man in that position has to be more careful than somebody like me has. He can't let himself go. He's got too many people to please, or rather not to offend. And one thing was certain about Harold, and that ought to have made him more human, but somehow it didn't. And that was that he meant to get on. He had ambition, with a bit of fire and nonsense in it somewhere, but a sort of 
cold determination to keep on moving up. You see what I mean? No questions, remember, Mr. Patson. Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Well, that's how he is. But then I noticed another thing about Harold, and even my wife had to agree about this. He was what we called a damper. If you took him out to enjoy something, he not only didn't enjoy it himself, but he contrived somehow to stop you enjoying it too. Then, before I'd learnt some sense, I'd talked to him about various plans I had for improving the business, but as soon as I'd described any scheme to Harold, I could feel my enthusiasm ebbing away. I felt, or he made me feel, any possible development wasn't worth the risk. Better stick to the old routine. I think I'd have been done for now if I hadn't had sense enough to stop talking to Harold about the business. If he asked me about any new plans, I'd tell him I hadn't any. Now, all this was long before I knew about the grey ones. But I had Harold on my mind, particularly as he lived and worked so close to us. When he became clerk of the council, I began to take more interest in our municipal affairs, just to see what influence Harold was having on them. I made almost a detective job of it. Between them, he and his friend, the treasurer, who was another of them, managed to put an end to everything that added a little colour and sparkle to life around our way. Of course, they always had a good excuse, economy, you know, and all that. But I noticed that Harold and the treasurer only made economies in one direction, what you might call the anti-grey side. They never stirred themselves to save money in other directions. When did you decide Harold was a grey one? As soon as I began thinking over what Furbright said. I'd never been able to explain Harold before, and God knows I've tried often enough. And then I saw at once he was a grey one. He wasn't born one, of course, for that couldn't possibly be how it works. My guess is that sometime while he was still young... The soul or essence of the real Harold Southers was drawn out and a grey one slipped in. That must be going on all the time now. There are so many of them about. Of course, they recognise each other and help each other. That makes it easy for them to handle us humans. They know exactly what they're up to. They receive and give orders. It's like having a whole well-disciplined secret army working against us. And the only possible chance now is to bring them out into the open and declare war on them. How can we do that if they're secret? Oh, I've thought a lot about that. And it's not so completely hopeless as you might think. After a time, you begin to recognise a few. Harold, for instance, and our borough treasurer. Yes, I know what you're thinking, Doctor. If they're all officials, eh? Well, no, they aren't. Those seven or eight of them are, and you can see why, because that's where the power is now. Another two are up-and-coming politicians, and not in the same party, either. One's a banker, I know, in the city, and he's a grey one, all right. I wouldn't have been able to spot them if I hadn't spent so much time either with Harold or wondering about him. They all have the same... Oh, cutting down and bleaching stare, the same dead touch... Wait till you see a whole lot of them together holding a conference. Perhaps you would like a cigarette now, Mr. Patson. Eh? No, take one of these. I'm not a smoker myself, but I'm told they're excellent. Oh, ah, you will have a light. Good. Aye. Now, take it easy for a minute or two, because I think you're tiring a little. And it's very important you should be able to finish your account of these grey ones. If possible, without any hysterical overemphasis. I... Uh, 
No, 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 Mr. Patson. I didn't mean to suggest there'd been any overemphasis so far. You've done very well indeed up to now, bearing in mind the circumstances. <laughs> and it's a heavy sort of day, isn't it? Oh, we seem to have too many days like this, don't we? Aye. Or is it simply that we're not getting any younger? <laughs> now then, Mr. Patson. At the point you broke off your story, shall we call it, you had suggested that you had seen a whole lot of grey ones together holding a conference. I think you might very usefully enlarge that rather astonishing suggestion, don't you? Yeah, I'd just as soon leave that, if you don't mind, Doctor. Unless you are perfectly frank with me, it'll be very difficult for me to help you. Come now, we agreed about that. So far, you follow my instructions admirably. All I ask now is for a little more cooperation. Did you actually attend what you believe to be a conference of these grey ones? Yes, I did. But I'll admit I can't prove anything. I overheard Harold and our borough treasurer arranging to travel together to Mornby Hall. It's about 15 miles north of where I live. I'd never been there myself. But I'd heard of it in connection with various summer schools and conferences and that sort of thing. Perhaps you know it, Dr Smith. As a matter of fact, I do. I had to give a paper there one Saturday night. Well, it seems they were going there to attend a conference of the New Era Community Planning Association. And when I heard them saying that, first I told myself how lucky I was not to be going too. Then, afterwards, thinking it over, I saw that if you wanted to hold a meeting that no outsider in his senses would want to attend, you couldn't do better than to hold it in a country house that's not too easy to get at and call it a meeting or a conference of the New Era Community Planning Association. Well, Saturday was the day of the conference. I went down to my office in the morning just to go through the post and see if there's anything urgent and they went home to lunch. In the middle of the afternoon, I felt I had to know what was happening out at Mornby Hall. So off I went in my car. I parked it just outside the grounds, uh, sorted round a bit, and then I found an entrance through a little wood at the back. There were nobody about, and I sneaked into the house by way of a servant's door near the pantries and larders. There were some catering people around there, but nobody bothered me. I went up some back stairs, and after a bit more scouting, which I enjoyed as much as anything I've done this year, I was guided by the sound of voices to a small door in a corridor upstairs. It led to a little balcony overlooking the floor of the ballroom. There was no window near this balcony, so that it was rather dark up there and I was able to creep down to the front rail without being seen. There must have been between three and four hundred of them in that ballroom sitting on little chairs. This balcony was high above the platform, so I had a pretty good view of them as they sat facing it. They looked like grey ones, but of course I couldn't be sure. And for the first hour or so, I couldn't be sure whether this really was a meeting of the New Era Community Planning Association or a secret conference of the grey ones. The stuff they talk would have done for either. That's where the grey ones are so damnably clever. They've only to carry on doing what everybody expects them to do in their capacity as sound, conscientious citizens and men in authority to keep going with their own hellish task. Well, I was just about to creep back up to the corridor, giving it up as a bad job, when something happened. 
Yes, Mr. Patson. Then something happened. Well, this is the part you can say I imagined. And I can't prove that I didn't. But I certainly didn't dream it because I was far too cramped and aching to fall asleep. Well, the first thing I noticed was a sudden change in the atmosphere of the meeting. It, it, it was as if somebody very important had arrived, although I didn't see anybody arriving. And I got the impression that the real meeting was about to begin. These grey ones, massed together down there, had now a positive quality of their own, which I'd never discovered before. It wasn't that they were just negative, not human, as they were at ordinary times. They had this positive quality, which, which I can't describe except as a sort of chilly hellishness, as if they'd stopped pretending to be human and were letting themselves go, recovering their demon natures. I was crouching there, just above three or four hundred creatures from cold, cold hell. That quality I mentioned, that chilly hellishness, it seemed to come rolling over me in waves. I might have been kneeling on the edge of a pit of iniquity a million miles deep. I felt the force of this hellishness, not on the outside, but inside, as if the very essence of me was being challenged and attacked. Then somebody, something, arrived. Whoever or whatever they'd been waiting for was down there on the platform. I knew that definitely, but I couldn't, I couldn't see him or it. All I could make out was a sort of thickening and whirling of the air down there. Then out of that a voice spoke, the voice of the leader they'd been expecting. But this voice didn't come from outside through my ears, it spoke inside me, right in the centre, so that it came out to my attention, if, if you see what I mean. All I wanted to do was to get away from there as soon as I could, but for a few minutes I was too frightened to make the necessary move. But then you heard what this voice was saying, Mr Pat. Some of it, yes. Excellent. Now, this is important. Did you learn from it anything you hadn't known before? Please answer me carefully. I'll, I'll tell you one thing you won't believe. Not about the voice, we'll come to that. But about those grey ones. I risked a peep while the voice was talking. And what I saw nearly made me pass out. There they were. Three or four hundred of them. Not looking human at all. Not making any attempt. They'd all gone back to their original shapes. They looked. Uh, this is the nearest I can get to it. Like big, semi-transparent toads. And their eyes were like 600 electric lamps burning underwater. All greeny, unblinking, and shining out of hell. But what did you hear the voice say? How much can you remember? That's what I want to know. Come along, man. I, I heard it thank them. In the name of Adaragrapha, Lord of the Creeping Hosts. 
Oh, yes, I could have imagined it. Only I never knew I'd got that sort of imagination. And what is imagination, anyhow? What else? What else did you hear? Ten thousand more were to be drafted into the Western region. There'd be promotion for some who'd been on continuous duty longest. Grey ones. And more and more of them coming. Taking charge of us, giving us a push here, a shove there. Down, down, down. Mr Patson, Mr Patson, you must not excite yourself so much. I cannot allow it. <coughs> and now I must ask you to keep still and quiet for a minute while I speak to my partner, Dr Meinstein. It's for your own good. Now give me your promise. All right. Well, don't be long. Dr. Smith, I was just... Your clock has stopped. These two gentlemen are my colleagues, Mr. Patson, Dr. Meinstein and Dr. Stobart. You must realise that you are a very sick man. Sick in mind, if not yet sick in body. Uh So you must put yourself in our hands. Oh, God! No! Keep away! Ravens! You! Ravens! That was The Grey Ones by J.B. Priestley, with Tony Britton as Patson and Jack May as Dr. Smith. Dramatised for radio by Patricia Mays. It's a World Service Drama production produced by Derek Hodenot and directed by Martin Williamson.